if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, nope to open up to Genesis chapter three, Genesis chapter three, or uh, you can uh, follow along on the U version Bible app. And uh, while you're uh, flipping over to Genesis chapter three, uh, last week we started the series uh, titled Genesis Stories from the Beginning. And really, that's what Genesis is. I mean, the Hebrew word for Genesis is beginning. And we started with the idea that from the very beginning, God was creator. He is. He created everything in the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth. And he took that and he formed light and he formed the waters and the expanse, water on the ground, water in the sky. He created all living things and he created mankind. And while everything he created, he created with the command to create this or to create this for mankind, he breathed life into them. And he created this perfect setting for which they would they would work and he put man in Eden to work the garden and to take care of it, to complete this task and to be in relationship with mankind. And God saw that man or Adam was by himself and so he created a helper for him and we see uh, God created man and female. And we see in Genesis chapter two, the beginning of this marriage covenant. And we see that things are perfect. And we left off last week with things being perfect. And what a difference a week can make. What a difference a week can make. Or for them, a little longer than a week. But for us, we end things perfectly one week. And then the next week, we have to talk about this difficult subject, the fall of man the fall of man. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see the story of how sin enters into the world. And it's a difficult topic and it's a difficult conversation. But yet even in the midst of this, we see the goodness of God. And so what happened? Well, to see what happened, we have to start in the first five verses of Genesis chapter 3. And this is what it says. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So to start off chapter three, we're introduced right away to the serpent. And the serpent is crafty. And this word crafty here, it's akin to prudence or sly. He was sly. He was crafty. And you see, this word is not always used in a negative sense, but here it is because the serpent right away is going to use his craftiness, his slyness, for sin. And people like to discuss what does this mean when we read about the serpent? Who is the serpent? Well, the serpent is Satan. 
Now, there's debate on, on how Satan was the serpent. Some say that Satan took over the body of a serpent that was created by God, and he used it to talk to the woman. Or some people say that Satan took on the form of a serpent to deceive. Whatever one it was, it doesn't really matter because we know that the serpent is Satan. We know that because Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 tells us, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And so the serpent comes onto the scene, and he asks the question, did God really say you must not eat from the tree, or any trees in the garden? And what he's asking really is, is God really that strict? Is God really that strict to say that you can't eat from any of the trees in this garden? That just seems like your God is just really, really strict. And so Eve responds. The woman responds, you know, Eve. And the woman says to the serpent, no, we can eat from uh, the trees in the garden, but not this one. We can't eat from this one or we can't touch this one. And you see, a lot of times, we just seem to gloss over this. We kind of move past it real quick. We read it and, and move on. And there's really actually something very important about what the woman says here to the serpent. You see, her initial response, she says the right thing. You know, God didn't say we can't eat from the trees of the garden. She gets that right. But then... She misquotes God's command. In chapter 2, God says, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. He never says anything at all about not touching it. But yet she says, God said we can't eat from it or even touch it. Why is this important? Well, this could be a misunderstanding on her part. This could be a misremembrance on her part. It could be she's adding a little bit of extra emphasis. I don't even want to touch that tree because if I even touch it, something bad could happen to me. It could have been that Adam told her this. Don't, don't even touch that tree. Just stay away from it. Don't even touch it. But either way, what we brush away is not important, is actually very important because where Satan is trying to play at God being more strict than he actually is, by the woman saying this, this is actually reinforcing the lie by misquoting it. And because the serpent will see that and say, man, he's that strict, you can't even touch it? That's strict, God is really, really strict. And so the serpent responds back to woman and says, you will certainly not die. God knows what will happen if you eat from this tree. First, Satan decries what God says will happen. He contradicts God, and really what he does here is he calls God a liar. He calls out the character of God by calling him a liar. You will surely not die. This isn't true at all. Don't even worry about that. That's, that's not going to happen. What he's saying is, God is lying. You're not going to die if you eat from this tree. But remember, 
For as often as we try to hear Satan say that God is lying, we know that Satan is the liar. It's in his native language. That is who he is. Satan is a liar. John 8, 44 tells us, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And I love this quote that I read from BibleRef.com when talking about this verse. It says, this conversation serves as a prototype for temptation to sin. The serpent's strategy begins with starting a conversation about it, then subtly questioning the fairness of the command, and then candidly calling God a liar. And how true is this of us? Surely God didn't mean that I can't do this. Surely I can make my own decisions, and surely God won't get mad at me if I do whatever it is that I want to do. And then Satan tells him, in a way, God is really holding you back. Because you won't eat from this tree, God is really holding you back. Because if you would just eat from this tree, your eye, or from this tree, your eye, your eyes will be opened, and you will be just like God. God is holding you back. He doesn't want you to know the things that He knows. He doesn't want you to have this knowledge. And what Satan is really doing here is. He's promising divinity. He's promising divinity. You will be just like God if you eat from this tree. He doesn't want you to be like him. And if you do, you would have divinity just like him. And notice this. One of the ways that the enemy, one of the ways that Satan lies and deceives is to tell partial truths. He's smart. He's crafty. He knows that if he tells a partial truth, if he, he takes the truth and he twists it just a little bit, he could get people to believe it. And you know, they won't die automatically. They're not going to pull the fruit down and, and eat the fruit and die automatically. They could have, for all I know, but they won't die automatically. But yet there will be consequence for this, which we will get to. But then in verses 6 and 7, it tells us this. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. She sees the food and sees how desirable it is. I think Alan Ross sums this up pretty well when he says, physical practicality, good for food, aesthetic beauty, pleasing to the eye, and potential for gaining wisdom to be in the know. These draw a person over the brink once the barrier of punishment is supposedly removed. She sees this and it looks good and she sees that it's good for food and it looks delicious and she sees that there's wisdom to be had in this and she just cannot refuse. And so she takes and she eats. And it's here we see the essence of sin to put human judgment and desire over God's divine command. And sadly, these things still drive the world today. 1 John 2, 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And yet we are still driven by these things. 
And then we see that man, Adam, is also there, and he also eats. And now, here's the thing. It doesn't really tell us what was Adam doing during this time. It doesn't tell us if he's there for the whole conversation or if he shows up right as the woman is eating the fruit. I think most scholars and most people believe that he was there for the whole conversation. And regardless of whether he's there for part of the conversation or the whole conversation, notice here he chooses not to speak up. He chooses not to say anything, but rather he chooses to follow along. He chooses not to protect his wife but to join. You see, she might have ate first, but his willingness to go along with it is, you know, it's just as bad. Adam is kind of like one of those people who don't stand up when they know that something is wrong and they follow the crowd. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us that it was Adam's sin that brought sin into the world. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And we see that now their eyes are open, and they look and they see that they were naked. And their eyes are open, and there's so much more to this than just they see that they're naked and cover up. When they were naked before, they felt no shame because the knowledge of good and evil, you know, they didn't need to worry about evil. They didn't know what evil was. And so what they were doing was not wrong, but now their eyes have been open, and the wisdom they were expecting is not the wisdom that they got. There's wisdom, but now they feel guilt, and they're ashamed. They feel the urge to cover up, to hide themselves from each other, to not trust the motives of each other. And again, BibleRef.com, I think, says it really well here. It says, they do come to know good and evil, but that knowledge brings them neither God's power nor his wisdom, nor his ability to love. Knowledge without corresponding maturity brings perversion. Humanity is not equipped for this knowledge, and so it brings them shame, fear, and pain. They came to know good by abandoning it. They gained the knowledge of evil by committing it for the first time in human history. And so, we see they gain this wisdom, but it's not exactly what they were expecting. And then in verse 8 through 13, it tells us, And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So one day God's just out strolling in the garden. Imagine that. There's mankind and God's just out strolling in the garden can't even fathom what that must have been like and he calls they hear him and they're naked and afraid and so they hide and God calls out for him where are you the word you here it's a, a singular and so what he's really saying is Adam where are you where are you Adam and so Adam responds I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid and God asked a great question here how did you know and he knows how they know. 
He's all-knowing. But he asks the question. He's given him an opportunity to confess. How do you know? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? And again, he asked, who told you this? This word, you, it's again singular. Who told you this, Adam? And now look what Adam does here. Look at Adam's response. He says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. You notice what he's doing here? Read that again, but look at it like this. And look, he says, woman, her fault, that you made your fault, gave me some, and I ate. It wasn't his fault that he ate. It was woman's fault that he ate. She gave him the fruit. It wasn't his fault that she ate. It was God's fault. He made her. It was everybody's fault but his own. And how about all this time later, we still face this. Our sin is everybody's fault except our own. And you were the one who told me I should do this. You were the one who tempted me to do this. You were the one who dared me to do this. You were the one who told me nothing would happen if I made this decision. You were the one who said you should do this. It was you. It was your fault. Everybody's fault except our own. We make the decision to sin. It's not the, the people around us. They can try to tell us what to do, but it's our decision to make the move. It is our decision to say, I'm going to choose to do this. It's our decision to say, I'm going to do what I know I should not be doing. It is our decision on whether or not we follow through. And that's the mistake that Adam makes. It was her fault. It was your fault. It's not my fault. And God turns his attention to the woman and ask, what is it you've done? And she does the same thing. It, it was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. Everybody's fault but our own. And so God turns his attention in verse 14 to the consequences of this. And in verse 14, he says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals, and you will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Because of what he's done, the serpent will be cursed to eat from the ground, to crawl on the ground all the days of his life. And then he turns to woman, and he tells woman in verse 16, says, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. He starts by saying you will have pain in childbirth. It's gonna, labor is going to be hard, and it is going to hurt, and it is going to be painful because of this. And then he makes the comment, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What does this mean? What does this mean when God says this? The word for desire here, it carries the idea of take control. You will desire, you will want to take control over your husband. That will be your desire. And Eve tried to take control, didn't she? She tried to do things on her own and, and you know, gave Adam the fruit. And in doing so, now and he will be the one, his headship will be dominant over you. And it will be a struggle and you will desire to take control of the relationship, and yet you will not be able to. But also know that this is not a command for men to dominate over their spouse. 
Instead, men are to follow the example that comes from Ephesians to love their wives as their own body. And women are to follow the example of Ephesians 5, which says they are to submit to the headship of the husband. But you see, where there was once unity and understanding, there is now strife and power grabbing, and sin has brought death to harmony. And then he responds to man, to Adam. He says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So what will Adam's punishment be? Well, he will have to work hard to eat from the land. It will be very painful. A matter of fact, the word painful here is the exact same word used for painful when talking about a woman's labor. It's the same word for painful. It will be difficult. It will be hard work. You will sweat. You will bleed. And you will die. And you will return to the ground as dust. Just as you were created from dust, you will return back to dust. And so now let's go back to the serpent. Surely you will not die if you eat from this tree. Well, they didn't fall to the ground dead automatically when they ate. Oh, but death did enter into the world. And not just physical death, which would be slow and painful, but also spiritual death. A death that is a distance now between us and God. This a gap in between man and God. Spiritual death and physical death have entered into the world. Paul talks about this spiritual death in Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedience. And so these are the punishments that they receive. And then we go to verse 20 and it says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so, Lord God makes garments of skin for them and clothes them. And yet, here's the thing. In these verses, we see they lose paradise. They lose paradise because of their sin. They are, driv are driven out of the garden. And yet, what we fail to see oftentimes when we read this is how just a giant act of mercy this is from God. This is God just showing mercy for what has happened because think about this. If they were to go and pull down fruit from the tree of life, think about what their life would be. They would live forever and ever and ever and ever without any hope. They would live forever in a fallen state, in a fallen world without any hope of ever being reconnected with God because they would live forever and so God is showing them mercy 
given them an opportunity for hope. What's better, a life of death or an opportunity for a life spent eternally with him or to live forever in a fallen state separated from God? You see, we may die in our physical body, but we can have that opportunity at eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so what does he do? He, he protects the garden by putting cherubim, who are powerful winged angels, around to protect the garden and the tree and this flaming sword to keep them from getting to it. And so there we see the beginning of sin. We see sin enter into the fray, and then we're going to go over to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we see it ramp up. We see it ramp up, and in the first five verses of chapter 4, this is what it says. It says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And so Eve here gives birth to a son, and notice that even in her suffering and painful childbirth, she still acknowledges God's help and, um, help and the fact that he allows her to give birth. And then she gives birth to a second son, so Cain and then Abel. And we see here that each of these men have a task. Abel works the flocks while Cain works the soil, and we see that one day they bring offerings before God, and the scripture at this point in time doesn't tell us anything about what the offerings were supposed to be and what the guidelines there were at the time of offering. Later on, we would see that it was this idea of bringing animal sacrifices, and so we don't really see here what the issue was, except that they bring offerings. And we see that Abel brings an offering of fat portions, probably from a lamb, and God was pleased with it. But then Abel brings some of the fruits to sacrifice, and God is not pleased with it. We don't see what it was he brought, and we don't really see why God was displeased with it, but I think what we see here kind of gives us a hint. You see, I think the issue here is Cain's heart. It's Cain's heart. He's coming before him, and he brings an offering with a heart that is darkened. We see a glimpse of this in the fact right here at the beginning that he was angry, and his face was downcast. He was angry with God because God didn't look at his offering as favorably. It seems to show a heart that is not committed. It's darkened. And so the Lord responds in verses 6 and 7. He says, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Why are you angry, Cain? Why are you angry about this? If you do what's right, would you not be accepted? But here's the thing. If you choose to sin... And if you choose not to do what's right, sin is waiting to pounce, and it desires. This word desires here, it's the same word used when in talking about woman's uh, desire for her husband. It's that word take control. 
sin will pounce, will take control of you. And yet, you have an opportunity. You don't have to let it, but see how often, that's the same thing with us. We can choose to be obedient or we can set our own standard for what we should or shouldn't do. But if we choose not to listen to God's standard, then we need to know that sin is waiting to pounce and is crouching and ready to take control of us. 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But we must rule over it. He tells Cain, you must rule over it. Take control of it. Take hold of it. You must rule over this temptation. And I think sometimes we forget that we can actually overcome temptation. I think sometimes we get it in our head that once we're tempted, the only thing for us to do is just to give in. And yet we see that we can actually withstand temptation in those moments when we're feeling tempted. We can turn to God. We can turn to the Spirit. We can pour out in prayer. Yeah, I'm feeling tempted. I, what do I do? How do I get away from this? We can put ourselves in situations that are better than the situations we're in. We can choose to avoid the things that cause us to stumble, to cause us to fall. We can overcome our temptation. I like this quote. It's from F.B. Meyer who says, Temptation may even be a blessing to a man when it reveals to him his weakness and drives him to the Almighty Savior. Do not be surprised then, dear child of God, if you are tempted at every step of your earthly journey and almost beyond endurance, but you will not be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, and with every temptation there will be a way of escape. We can choose to escape. We can choose to rule over those temptations. We can choose to walk away and do the right thing. Too often, though, it's our desire that wins out. And what happens with Cain? We go to verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord God said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And so Cain, out of jealousy, out of a darkened heart, chooses instead to not listen to God, but rather to kill his brother. And John says some pretty big things about this in 1 John 3.12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. And he chooses to do the wrong thing and he chooses to let sin devour him. And so the Lord asked, hey, where's your brother? And Cain responds, I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? Look at this in comparison to Adam. God asked Adam where he was and he confessed even if it was reluctantly but yet here Cain shows so much disrespect and flippancy. How am, I, how am I supposed to know? I'm not in charge of him. I, why are you asking me? But to see again, God knew. 
what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me. God is not asking for information. He's not saying, hey, just tell me what happened. No, he's, he, what he's doing is he's condemning him. What is it that you have done to your brother? His blood cries out to me. This idea of your brother's blood crying out, it carries the idea that every sin rises up before God. Every sin we commit rises up before God. Our sins are ever before God. That's why in Psalm 51, verse 4, David makes the comment, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so God will punish Cain for this. And the first thing he does is he's gonna drive him away from the land of his family. Just as Adam and Eve were driven away from the garden, so he will be driven away from his family. But then he tells him that this ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood, when you work the ground, it's no longer gonna yield crops for you. You will be a restless wonder on the earth. Think about what Cain's job was. He worked the ground. Now, all of a sudden, the thing that was Cain's livelihood, the thing that was his skill, the thing that he did for a living would no longer produce for him. He would no longer succeed at getting food from the ground. And said, now he was going to have to find food and shelter in other places. He would be a restless wanderer looking everywhere for food and a place to stay. I've read questions people have asked in the past. Why didn't God just kill Cain? Why didn't he take Cain out? He could have just wiped Cain off the face of the earth. He could have just been done with this and continued along. Why does he choose to, to just drive him out and to take this away from him? Well, I like what John MacArthur says. He gives a couple of reasons why he thinks that this happens the way it does. He says, one, grace. And certainly that's true, isn't it? God is by nature gracious. And even though God had pronounced a curse on Cain, he was still going to extend some grace to him. Secondly, government. The right of capital punishment belongs to a duly constituted government and is never ever to be an act of personal private vengeance. God didn't establish an illustration of personal vengeance here. And he goes, and I think there's a third reason God allowed him to live. If God killed him, there wouldn't be any living example of what an unbeliever's life is like might have been the best thing to kill him rather than have him go on with the horrible life he lived. But if God had killed him, then there wouldn't be anybody to see what an ungodly life is like. And so in a way, it's possible that God makes Cain an example. This is what happens when you choose to ignore me. This is what happens when you choose to disobey me and go against me. You will live a life of pain. You will live a life of suffering if you choose to walk away. And Cain responds in verses 13 through 16. He says, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod east of Eden. So Cain responds by saying, my punishment is just too severe. It's too severe. I, how will I survive? People will try to kill me. I'll be hidden from your sight. That's just too much. But notice the tone here. Yes, he realizes that without God in his presence, he would 
uh, suffer, but at the same time, there doesn't seem to be any actual res like sadness in the voice of Cain. There's no actual you know, repentance. There's no, God, help me, forgive me. There's none of that. He's worried about what's going to happen to his life more than he's worried about anything else. And even still, God shows here some grace, and God does not want people taking vengeance. Scripture tells us that he is the one to dish out justice. Romans 12, 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And so God bestows on him grace, and yet we see what happens. Cain walks away. There's no repentance, no please forgive me, Father. There's no I'm sorry for what I've done. He just simply walks away. He, choose, he chooses to follow the world, and he walks away from the presence of God. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you see the type of stuff that continues on in Cain's family rebellion that continues with Cain's family. They may be productive, but guess what? They fall into sin and depravity over and over and over again. And if we just stopped there this morning, it would be pretty bleak. But here's the thing. You might have noticed earlier I skipped over a verse in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see something pretty important. In Genesis 3.15, it tells us, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his hill. You see, there would be a battle that would play out. And it would be between Satan and the offspring of woman. And who is this offspring of woman? Well, this would be Christ. And guess what? Satan would damage Christ but Paul, in his word, says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This text right here, Genesis 3, 15, it's, there's a word for this. It's called proto-evangelium, and it's a big word, and what it really means, very simply, is the first gospel. It is here in Genesis 3, 15, we see for the first time the gospel and I think here's the thing that we need to think about this morning. I said we see the goodness of God shown in this. Well, here's the thing. Sin had entered the world, but God had a plan of redemption. Sin had entered into the world, but yet God had a plan of redemption. God could really have just wiped us all out. Right there at the beginning. Could have wiped out man. Could have said, I'm done. I tried. It didn't work. But no, that's not what he did. He had a plan of redemption, and that redemption would come through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the blood that he would shed. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Hebrews 9, 15 reminds us, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, there was a plan of redemption. And we can be redeemed. Sin entering the world was not the end of the story. But there was a moment in Genesis 3.15 that God gives us a plan of redemption. 
You see, sin has entered this world, but God has redeemed us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they do, again, sin has entered the world, but God has redeemed us through the blood of his son. And it says in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He didn't have to, but he chose to send his son for us. He didn't have to fix our mistake. He didn't have to fix the, the problem of sin. that ended. He didn't have to do it. He could have started all, he could have just wiped it out and started all over, but he chose to send his son to redeem us. And the question I would ask you this morning is this. Have you given your life to him? Have you given your life to him? Have you received that forgiveness, that redemption that only the Son of God can provide? And we may be broken, we may be sinful, but yet God sent his Son for us to redeem us from our sins. And this morning, if you've never made that decision, you can. And the connect cards and the chairs around you, you can, uh, you can write it down. I'd love to talk with you. If you want to talk with me this morning, I'd love to talk with you about it. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've been thinking, man, I've been blaming everybody else for my sins, for my mistakes. I've been holding on to my sin and to my mistakes and I have been letting the enemy win over and over and over. I've been believing every single lie that he has thrown at me. And maybe this morning what you need to do is you just need to lay all those things before God and you just need to pour all those things out before him. And we don't have to carry that sin with us. We don't have to carry those mistakes. We can leave those at the feet of Christ. And so this morning, if that's you and you just need to spend some time praying to him, right where you're sitting, you can do so. If you want to pray with me, I'd love to pray with you. The elders would love to pray with you. And sin entered into the world, but God had a plan. And he sent his son to be our redemption our forgiveness. And so this morning, if you have a decision to make, I pray that you do so as we stand and we sing.